everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast. My name is Jill, and I'm the host and creator of this podcast. This is our 10th episode. That's so crazy to me that we're already 10 episodes in. Joining me today is Jessica Irwin, an underwater archaeologist based in Pensacola, Florida. Before we jump in with Jessica, I would like to touch on a bit of the craziness going on in the world. I hope that each and every one of you is doing your part to flatten the curve, and that this podcast brings you a little bit of joy, or at least something to listen to while you do so. And now, let's get to Jessica and learn something about underwater archaeology. Hi everyone, we are here with Jessica today. So Jessica, how about you start out and tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Yeah, my name's Jessica. Um, I am an underwater archaeologist and a nonprofit professional. So I do a little bit of both. Um, I do field work um, right now on a volunteer basis, but I've been an underwater archaeologist for 10 years and I work for an environmental nonprofit called Keep Pensacola Beautiful. Um, And we do all kinds of stuff from like picking up litter on the side of the road to restoring oyster reefs in our local bay to like painting houses. So um, I'm kind of at this point in my career, like a little bit of a jack of all trades, do a little bit of everything. So it's a great way to put it. Yeah, well, when you're around science long enough, like you have to pick up a little bit of everything because no job is ever like, hey, these are your job duties. And then there's always that like, and duties as assigned, which ends up being like what you actually do. (laughs) I can't think of one job where I've just been doing like one thing. It's always been like, oh, by the way, can you just go like maybe do this once or twice or every day? Exactly. So what is an underwater archaeologist? Um, So an underwater archaeologist is sometimes called a maritime archaeologist or a nautical archaeologist. And what we do is um, we study archaeological and cultural sites that are under the water. Um, So we actually do a lot of our training and dive training and scientific methods alongside a lot of like marine biologists and geophysicists and other scientists who work under the water. Um, But we focus more on like the impact that people have. Um, A lot of times it's in shipwrecks, but sometimes it's, you know, submerged cities, old harbors and ports. Um, And there's actually a really exciting kind of new field um, called submerged paleolandscapes, which is looking at cultural sites that are from before, you know, the last ice age when the continental shelf was exposed. So, you know, we do a lot of those kind of things, but we also do a lot of kind of collaborative stuff with other scientists to be able to access the cultural sites. Um, And I mean, there's a, a saying that like, you can't really teach a diver to be an archaeologist, but you can teach an archaeologist how to be a diver. Um, and so a lot of us start out on land and then kind of migrate under the water as we come up with the questions that we really want to answer. So I think it's one of those things that's kind of across all fields. Like you get into a field because there's questions and things that you want to find the answers to. And so as an archaeologist and a person who studies culture, um, the questions that I've always wanted to answer have had to do with like, the ocean, shipping, you know, transatlantic life. Um, And so, so yeah, so it's kind of like a a broad overview of what an underwater archaeologist does. I'm like blown away. That is so cool. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like every other job where it sounds a lot cooler than it actually ends up being like day to day. Um, But, you know, in in science, especially in science that deal with underwater environments, 
you know, you're taking these like really complicated skills and then you're moving them under the water. So just like kind of every other underwater job, it takes like a lot of planning, a lot of forethought. And unfortunately, the amount of time that you actually get to spend under the water is like only like a very small percentage of your time. Um, On average, for every week you spend in the field, you spend at least four months in the lab. So, um, you know, there's a lot of kind of like crossover there. But I think that's kind of how all like heavily field-based science ends up. And the further along you go in it, the less and less you actually get to be in the field. (laughs) Yeah, the more you're in front of your laptop or a computer, you're doing that, all that fun stuff. Yeah. How is this something that you got started in? Like you said, you started out on land as an archaeologist. And then like, how did you get here? Yeah. Um, I am one of those very weird people who knew what I wanted to do from like the time I was little. Um, I always wanted to be an archaeologist and I wanted to be an archaeologist because I had really intense questions about history. A lot of the like, why and the, how do we know this? And like, are you sure? And can you prove this to me? Um, and when we don't have a written record or there's not historical documents, you know, the way to prove it or to find out about something is archaeology. Um, and the other part of it is that most, you know, history is written by the winners and most history is written by white males. And so that's just such a small chunk of everything that has happened um, in the history of the human race that there are so many questions that archaeology is trying to answer. Um, my specific expertise is historical archaeology. Um, so basically everything from Columbus to now. Um, and my particular area of expertise is actually the transatlantic slave trade. So when I was an undergrad, I did archaeological work in the Caribbean. I worked on um, some sugar plantations on the island of Nevis, which is next to St. Kitts and the Lesser Antilles. And it was really cool. Like we were looking at, you know, structures and trying to find like where enslaved people were living and um, looking at all these different, really amazing things. But my question was always like, how did they get here? What was that experience like for these people? Um, You know, what was the experience like of being separated from your family and redefining your culture and figuring out your identity? And what I found was a lot of that, those questions, the way that I wanted to answer them was to look at the ships that took people from Africa to the Americas. And so when I started really exploring that specific question, everyone told me like, oh, people just got ships and they repurposed them. And I was like, this is an industry that existed for 300 years. Like there is no possible way that every ship that ever went to Africa was just like a repurposed ship or it was an afterthought. Um, so I've spent, I spent about five years in graduate school um, looking at slave ships in the archaeological record and in the historic record to show that there were ships that were purposely built to go to Africa and bring people back um, as enslaved people. And that kind of just like kept igniting the passion. Um, I went to the University of Rhode Island. And so there is like a very big um, 
marine science program there as well. And so in working with those folks and pursuing like an AAUS diving certification, I was also introduced to all of these other like amazing opportunities um, and ways to collaborate. And so that kind of led me into some of the, my nonprofit roles, but you know, like I learned how to transplant coral. And so then when I was in, I was working in Bermuda, um, you know, we're looking at the shipwreck and really like evaluating like, oh, we need to move some of this coral to be able to access the resource. Like, is there a scientist that we can partner with to make sure that this coral is moved and stays healthy and has an opportunity to survive? Um, And so just, I found that like building relationships was also a big part of my passion. And so I work with all kinds of organizations and across the spectrum. That's kind of how I got from here to now is just being too curious, probably for my own good. That's such an interesting way to look at things. I've never thought about it that way. I'm very like, when I think of the water, I always go straight to the biology aspect of it. So to think of it in a cultural way and like how it's brought us here is so interesting and not an angle I've ever really thought about. Well, I think there's also um, part like, and I'm sure that you and like a lot of your listeners have experienced this too, is when you're looking to pursue the research that really interests you, right? Like funding is always like a huge issue. Um, And so in the Pacific, um, and I'm totally going to butcher this, but in the... um, the Mer- protecting marine, marine sanctuary that incorporates Ho- Hawaii. It's the like Papa something, a thousand syllables. Um, they can only send out one research vessel per year and they go out on like eight to 12 week research missions. Um, and everyone who wants to be on that ship like bids to like how they want to be on that ship and the research they want to do. And so my thought has always been like, you know, we have limited resources why not partner up? Like, why not say like, Hey, we're going to do this work in Bermuda. We're going to be in this really remote part of the reef. We're going out there every day for three weeks. You know, why don't we invite this coral biologist or a fish biologist or an ocean chemist or someone else to come out with us since we're already going to be there. Um, And I think that archaeologists and cultural anthropologists specifically are kind of starting to pursue that with other marine scientists because you know like if you're out there and you're doing it and you have another spot on the boat for somebody or you need another dive partner or you know you're looking for someone who can like be task saturated and check your traps or you know whatever you're doing um why not work collaboratively so it's you know it's always hard but um we all can like really benefit from each other if we try to try to look from multiple perspectives and see like how our research can benefit other research, even if it's not directly in our field. Oh, absolutely. Um, Kelsey and I were talking in one of our more recent podcasts about how when you're out on these research vessels, like time is money. And so if you have one person doing one thing, if you're out there doing another thing, but you have some downtime, like you're going to go help them do something else because you may as well work collaboratively. You may as well learn about other things and like get things done while you're waiting for something else that you can do. And you know that these people are also going to reciprocate that for yeah, you. Yeah, definitely. So what does a typical day in your life in the field look like? What are you doing while you're out there? How does it work? 
Um, so a typical day in the field for archaeology starts very early and ends very late. Um, we try to be on the water, depending on the depth of any one site, for like eight to ten hours um, so that we can maximize the number of dives that we have. Just like any kind of underwater science, you know, you're susceptible to like weather and currents and conditions. Um, so, you know, starts the day with loading up the boat, getting all the dive gear and um, then heading out having planned dives with specific objectives for each dive and specific members of like who's going to accomplish what objective. And a lot, some of those objectives are, you know, measuring a hole of a ship or um, dredging out sand to look for artifacts or mapping. Um, And then at the end of a project that can also be, you know, backfilling the site with the sand that you dredged out, um, checking on or replacing like rocks, coral that has been moved and making sure like it's in a stable condition. Um, And then one of the things that underwater archaeologists do that I think is actually pretty unique to our field is anything that we remove from the water, we have to have a plan of how we're going to preserve that and conserve it forever. So in perpetuity. Um, So we tend to you know, say like, okay, today we're going to be recovering like a wood core sample to do tree ring analysis or some kind of wood analysis to get more information about a specific shipwreck. So, you know, that's on a planned day so that we have the correct like materials, water, bags, labels on the boat. Um, And then when we get back to shore, that evening is normally spent processing anything that we've recovered, um, preparing it for either conservation or storage or to be shipped to an additional lab. Um, And sometimes that looks like washing artifacts, scrubbing artifacts, labeling them. And sometimes that looks like getting things ready for um, specifically metal ready for conservation. So uh, we do something uh, where you put metal into tanks and it's very scientific with like electrodes and replacing particles to make metal be sustained. But basically the minute you take an artifact off of a shipwreck, you're just like fighting against the clock to make sure it doesn't deteriorate into a thousand pieces. Um, These things have been really happy on the ocean floor for hundreds of years. And so, you know, when you disturb them, you have to have a plan for them. And then after that, normally get some food and then you start working in like your specific software. So it might be AutoCAD or ArcGIS or in a program for cataloging to get all of the data that you collected for the day initially processed and and then make a plan for the next day. So normally when you're in the field, obviously like we talked about time is money. Um, So you work seven days a week for however much you're out there. And sometimes, you know, you might work like 10 days in a row and have one day off. Sometimes you might work 20 days in a row and have no days off. It just depends on the project and kind of what's coming up. Because if you have good weather and the currents are in your favor, you're out there just doing it until kind of mother nature tells you, oh, hey, not today. Kind of so. Yeah. So you're kind of at the mercy of mother nature of when you can and cannot do your work. Yeah, exactly. And it also depends on a lot of things. Like I was um, part of the state archaeology team for South Carolina for a few years. And a lot of the work that we did there, it was, you know, in rivers. Um, There's huge archaeological record in South Carolina around rice plantations, civil warships, um, native, um, 
you know, depositories of like flint napping and all kinds of really cool stuff. And there nature might be like, there was a rainstorm 30 miles up river and the visibility today is going to be zero. Um, and so we can still work in zero visibility. It's just not very much fun. Um, or the weather conditions can be like, you know, you see monsoons on the horizon or you see rainstorms on the horizon. Like, can you get your objective done in the time that you need? Um, and then obviously, as soon as there's a hurricane, we all try to get out there because when it moves all the sand and shakes everything up, you know, we want to go out and see if anything new has been uncovered or if there's anything new we need to protect or document. So it's really very weather dependent, um, but it's also kind of dependent on like the availability of resources and boats and places to hold artifacts if you're going to recover them and all of those lovely budget things. Yeah, all those, the the not fun logistics part of everything. Exactly, the budget, the budget yeah. <laughs> so you must have gotten to see some super cool things underwater. Where has been your favorite place that you've gotten to dive? Um. Well, my favorite place for diving, just like in general, is actually Monterey, California. Um, if you ever get the opportunity to dive the kelp forest there, like they're absolutely stunningly beautiful. Um, and it's cold, but I would like go for it. Um, for archaeology, my favorite place to dive has been Bermuda. Um, just because there's such a variety of ships there, and there's such a variety of sites there. Um, everything from, you know, people who were coming to colonize in the Americas to World War II planes to Civil War blockade runners. Um, the shipwreck that I worked on specifically there was a ship that was taking people who were fleeing the Irish potato famine to New York and they sunk there. Um, and because it's such a complicated reef system, there's so many ships that have sunk there. So it's kind of just like every archaeologist's like happy place because you can, there's hundreds of wrecks to dive and every single one is so different. Um, and you get great visibility and it's warm water and there's beautiful fish and coral and, you know, can't go wrong. Can't go wrong there, no. I mean, it's pretty hard to go wrong anywhere where you get to be underwater with some cool stuff, but there just sounds absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Well, it's funny though, because the longer that you're doing this, it's harder to dive for fun. Um, you go diving and you're kind of like, oh, what am I supposed to be doing? Where am I supposed to be looking? Like, what's my objective? So the longer that you kind of work in the profession, the less you kind of do the fun diving. So you want to, like for me, when I go diving, I want to accomplish something. Like I want to have an objective. So like the most intriguing sites for me are the ones where, you know, there's there's work to be done and something new to see and something to discover, um, which is a mixed blessing because, you know, diving is a good time, but I'm like, show me something cool. God, I got to be finding something. I got to be doing something. There's just no turning it off for you. Exactly. It's what 10 years of work will do to you. <laughs> oh no. Can you tell us about some of the cool things you found or like what's your favorite thing like that you've dug up or brought up with you? Yeah, so the things that are really exciting for archaeologists are not the things that most people think are like the most like groundbreaking stuff. Um, so when I was working as a terrestrial archaeologist, there's this we we say, you know, you're never going to be able to prove definitively that something belongs to someone unless it has their name on it. 
Um, so I worked at James Madison's Montpelier, which is a presidential plantation. And while I was working there, we found a bottle seal that had, that said James Madison. So that was really exciting. Cause it was, you know, you can't ever say like, oh, this definitely belonged to him. You can be like, I think this probably did. Um, so that was really fun. And then in underwater environments, the exciting things to find, um, for me are the things that give you the clue to like what shipwreck it actually was or the name of the ship. So sometimes that's like something really simple, like a piece of pottery or ceramic that you can really tightly date. Um, For example, their tobacco pipes, the stems of tobacco pipes are littered in historic sites. And you can date the tobacco pipe by the width of the hole in the pipe really tightly um, to like 10 to 20 years tightly. And so finding a pipe stem on a site is like gold. You're like, yes, we can know when this site like went down like this or, you know, you can you can deduce the clues so that even though it's just like a little tiny white piece of ceramic that a lot of times looks like a piece of dead coral. When you find that you're like, oh, my gosh, like this could be the clue that's going to tell us when this ship sank. Um, I worked on a bunch of Civil War blockade wrecks off the coast of Charleston, and we had historic records um, talking about some of them. And what they did is they loaded these ships up with stone, and then they sank them in an attempt to not let other ships come into the harbor, but it didn't really work. Um, But we had all in a remote sensing survey um, using magnetometer and a side scan sonar, we had identified a bunch of ballast piles. So we're, we went and dove each one to see if we could figure out which ship was which from the record. And so diving down and seeing like a ship that's really nothing but a pile of granite, but knowing that in that historic record, there was only one ship that they loaded up with granite was really exciting. We're like, yes, this is the one, this is the one ship. Like we know the name of the ship. So I wish I could say like, you know, oh, I found a diamond necklace or like I found like, you know, like the things that people think of when they think about archaeology, like that we're looking for treasure. Um, But really what we're looking for is these clues to tell us about who was on, who was sailing, why they were sailing, how ships were constructed, the motivation for people um, and a way to look at life in the past. So those are the things that are exciting to me. And I know they sound, they're really nerdy. So (laughs) (laughs) no absolutely it sounds so fascinating like I was always someone who was so into history but never like pursued it like I didn't like being tested on history or like having to know stuff about history I just really liked learning about it and I kind of did some like underwater archaeology when I was like a kid and would swim in my lake and go see what I could dig up. And I would find, like, I found people's wedding rings. I found hundreds of golf balls. Like, just would find that kind of stuff. But I think what you're doing to actually learn more about history and, like, have a purpose to do it is so interesting. Yeah, I think what most people love about history is kind of that, like, juicy story. Um, (laughs) You know, like, you want to hear about, like, the ship that went down and who was on it and like, how did they survive? And like, you want, people want the story behind it. Um, And I think that archeology span like can like fill in a lot of the context for that. Um, And in like a really kind of like fun romantic way, um, you know, so. That is so cool. So 
for someone listening, like, it's obviously important to know this history, but could you give us more context as to why it's like, like, for somebody who's kind of listening and is like, oh, this is cool, but why should I care about it? What's the relevance to somebody like that? Well, there's kind of two parts to that. Our underwater archaeological sites are really important because they give us information that on like sites on land just can't. The best way to think about a shipwreck is to think about it as a time capsule. So when a ship goes down, everything that was on that ship, like material culture, um, you know, everything is from that exact moment in time. And on land, what you get is kind of like multiple layers of occupation, right? So someone builds a house and then they tear that house down to put up a new house or someone builds a house and it burns down. So then they plant a field over it. And then later on, someone has a campsite there. So you don't get this kind of like moment in time that you can look at. Um, And the reason that it's particularly important is because it informs our history, who we are, what we did in a way that no historic document ever will. Um, and it also shows us kind of the truth of things. You, you know, like, yes, maybe so-and-so in the past in 1766 wrote a letter, right? But like, how much can you really trust them? Like, how much can you trust their perspective? How much can you trust that they gave you the whole story? Um, And when we're looking at history, archaeology is really, it's not objective, but it is objective. Like, it's like, here are the artifacts. Here is the shipwreck. Here is the hole from where they dug a post to put up a house. Um, And it shows us history for people who are not represented in that written record. Um, And I think that's really important, especially as we talk about, you know, like, identity for women, identity for minorities, um, and histories that have been essentially like wiped out. You know, we won't ever be able to recreate the language of ancient societies that didn't have a written record, but we can take a look at like what their life looked like. And especially now with global climate change, um, you know, there's an opportunity here to see how other cultures and peoples faced sea level rise. And obviously it was natural versus like human driven like it is now, but to take a look and say like, this is how people adapted. Like, this is how people survived. Like, this is how economies work. This is what drove decisions. Um, and it's hard for a lot of people to equate that to like an object or just like discoloration and dirt. Um, but archeology span is a science and the people who are trained to do it can find those answers in something that seems so simple. That's a great way to put that. I've always loved the sentence or like the phrase, like you need to understand history to avoid repeating history. So I think it's super important that we do have people like you who are helping us better understand parts of history that we otherwise wouldn't be able to. So we can hopefully avoid those major downfalls that we've seen in the past. Definitely. Um, I mean, we're, we're destined to repeat our mistakes, but if we can like improve on them a little bit each time, um, you know, that's, that's the goal. So if there was a little girl listening right now who wanted to get into this field, how would she start? So there's lots of great resources, um, online to kind of like learn about like the preliminary stuff, 
um, the Society for Historical Archaeology has like a virtual dig that you can participate in. The Florida Public Archaeology Network has a lot of like online learning tools and resources. And I would encourage anybody who's just generally interested in archaeology, um, even if it's not underwater archaeology, to take a look at what their local universities um, have going on. A lot of universities will have like kids dig days or they'll have like volunteer field projects where you can come and participate um, or and local historical societies do it as well. And it's kind of like right in your own backyard. The other thing that I would suggest is, you know, picking up um, a book that you might not normally pick up. So, for example, when I was in graduate school, I was required to take a class um, called the Reagan Rhetoric. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I do not care about this. This is not my field. This is not my, like, passion in history. Um, but that class was just so informative to me as like a completely different perspective of looking at history. And so if you see something where you're like, yeah, I don't necessarily want to read about this aspect of history, um, give it a chance because even though history in high school and middle school can be really hard because it's like a lot of memorizing dates and names, when you get to be a professional historian or archeologist, it's not about that. It's about the story. It's about the people. It's about the patterns. Um, and it's a lot, you know, it's a lot more, a lot more interesting. The other thing is, um, you know, learn everything that you can. Like archaeology is one of these fields that like, you never know what you're going to be doing day to day, minute to minute. Um, which is why I'm still doing archaeology and I'm also employed at a nonprofit because in my pursuit of archaeology, I also learned how to do GIS. I also learned how to do AutoCAD. I learned how to use Illustrator. I learned about marketing. I learned about, you know, social media marketing. I learned about fundraising and public speaking. And so just every opportunity that comes your way, even if it doesn't seem like it's directly applicable to what your dream might be, take advantage of it because I guarantee you that it'll come back around and make you a stronger scientist or a stronger, you know, professional later on. Um, and then archaeology is one of those fields where you got to go to college. So get the grades, <laughs> go to school, <laughs> um, and, you know, give it, give everything a chance. But yeah. And recognizing your weaknesses is also really important. Um, I know, like, even now, I'm a terrible speller. Like, I'm horrible at spelling and grammar. Um, so I tell my employers that like, Hey, I'm going to need to build in an extra like hour or hour and a half into my workflow just for proofreading for everything. Um, you know, and I have the Grammarly extension and I use these extra tools to help me, but I know where my weaknesses lie and acknowledging that will get you so much further than trying to hide it and compensate for it. You know, just like honesty always. Um, and especially you know, underwater archaeology is still a very male-dominated field, and it is a serious struggle um, a lot of times because, you know, you're on a boat and you might be the only woman there, um, or you're on a field project and you're the only female. And so you the tendency for people is to be like, I'm strong and I can do this and I can do anything that you can do. But in reality, you know, you show what you can do and then the things that you can't do, it's totally okay to ask for help or to acknowledge like your weaknesses. So 
that's what I would encourage people to do. That's me. Um, you know, that's how I've kind of made it as long as I have. Uh, is there anywhere that people can follow along with your archaeology discoveries or you as a scientist anywhere? Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, my name is Jessica Irwin and there's a lot of us. So just like look for, you know, the archaeologist person. Um, and then I'm also on Instagram, Archeomama. I will warn you, like it's a lot of babies, not a lot of archaeology right now. Um, but I don't mind sharing that because I feel like there's a lot of stigma around like having children and still being a scientist and still like pursuing field work. Um, and you can definitely do both. It's not easy, but you can do it. Um, and then if you, you know, I work for a great organization right now called Keep Penn School Beautiful. It's an environmental nonprofit. And if you ever want to talk about like what nonprofit life is like or what jobs look like when you the way the, the idea you had in your brain of what your science dream was going to look like doesn't 100% pan out like that. There's so many options where you can still do what you love. It just might not look the way that you thought it was going to. Um, I'm happy to be a mentor or, you know, a sounding block for those kind of questions. So um, you can find me there as well. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, Jessica. It was a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was really fun. A big thank you again to Jessica for joining me on today's podcast. I hope you all enjoyed our 10th episode and are excited for next week's episode. I know I sure am. As always, you can check out The Water Woman Podcast on all social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at The Water Woman Podcast, on Twitter at The Water Woman Pod, and our website, waterwomanpodcast.weebly.com. And until next time, stay salty.